Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everyone and welcome. My name is John Bleasdell. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Tai Singh about that perennial favourite, what makes a good villain, the bad guys in the action movies. Tai is a producer and an author of two books on the subject, Born to be Bad and Born to be Bad Part 2, uh, both books featuring interviews with with uh, the bad guys who usually don't get an opportunity to talk and don't uh, and often end up in a hail of bullets if you like the episode please remember to like subscribe you can follow me on twitter at dr john d-r-j-o-n-t-y but before you do any of that please enjoy the conversation I think can make or break a good action film and books have already been written about all the heroes you know everything you need to know about Arnie and Stallone and Bruce Willis and if you're writing a book you're going to need access to those stars and when I started out I had nowhere near the credentials or kind of the access that would be needed to kind of interview those peoples but the actors that have played bad guys in a lot of the films I grew up watching from the 80s and 90s they are a wide mixture of people from like British stage actors to stuntmen to in some cases uh, ice skaters and ballet dancers they're weightlifters so they come from a whole range of sectors and just being able to talk to them was much much easier than reaching out to Hollywood's A-list stars yeah and you get that you get that with your interviews there's a real sense I got from reading I've only read the second volume of your book so I I put my hand up there that's fine but I got a feeling from the interviews, interviews that they were really keen to talk about it it was a real sort of sense of oh yeah nobody usually talks to us so you know uh... yeah absolutely there is definitely also a a lack of a publicist which you know from the news this week with stars like Matt Damon who are often pulling their hairs out of what their clients say you know with these actors who you know don't have publicists or a talent agency behind them they are very forthright about their experiences and especially in the first book I wrote people had no problems just shit talking some of the actors they had to work with one as as i haven't read that book you have to give me the shit shit talkiest (laughs) i mean this is this is not going to be a revelation to anyone who vaguely knows anything about him but steven seagal does not come off well from anyone who has kind of worked with him shocker anyone who who has worked with steven seagal if you bring up the name they immediately just kind of oh let me tell you about steven seagal (laughs) and it inevitably ends with and he's a complete dick (laughs) Right. So 
with all the, the revelations and accusations against Mr. Seagal, I don't think that came as a surprise to anyone. Wow, wow. Fancy having that reputation as well. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, because these guys must know they have this reputation. They must, it must come back to them or not. Are they just surrounded by a court that, that, that you know, shields them from that kind of criticism? Well, the bigger stars do, you know, because a lot of the people I've, I've worked with, you know, have worked with people like Stallone and Arnie. And depending when they worked with these stars in their careers, the stories vary wildly. So I've interviewed people who've known Arnie throughout his entire career, and they have nothing but great things to say about him. I've met people who worked with him in the late stages of his career, where he comes over as a bit arrogant. But then likewise, people have said he is a great guy to work with, very friendly. Same thing about Stallone. People say that, you know, he is the hardest person, working person in the room. He's great. He He's a, a very inspirational figure. But then you talk to people who worked with him when he was at his peak in the 80s, you know, Rambo 2, Rocky 3, and, you know, names were just greenlit on the back of his name. And he doesn't come off well. He's at kind of a, a peak ego stage and... You know, if I was Stallone, I would have probably fallen into the same trap. But it, it's amazing how some of these A-list actors, you know, their self-awareness kind of takes a dip at the peak of their career. And then they kind of realize that in later years and and they become a little bit more, more normal and well-rounded. But hey, it was the 80s. I'm sure everyone was like that to a point. <laughs> I heard a brilliant story about Stallone. Basically, a friend of mine was working on a, a, at a studio with him, and he was uh, they were walking down the studio backlog talk, talking, and Stallone was kind of talking about something about his modern art collection or something. He was talking quite seriously about it. And then some sort of teamsters walked by and went, oh, hey, Sly. And he sort of turned around and, and just totally changed demeanor. And, hey, hey, how you doing, guys? And it was just like, whoa, you know, that, he's, that his persona has this sort of slightly, you know, I'm exaggerating, but a, a slightly curated edge. What was, uh, what was the first baddie that you kind of, when you were watching movies, even as a kid, you sort of found yourself fascinated by or attracted to or, or terrified of terrified i mean as a child i was easily terrified right. horror films scared me and it wasn't until i got into my mid-teens where i think the adolescence fear i had of extreme violence and horror just disappeared forever and then i just dived headfirst into all of that but i do remember uh going to a friend's house when I was 12, 13, and he showed me, for the first time, I hadn't seen either of these films before, Commando and Mad Max 2 back-to-back. -back. And Vernon Wells as Bennett in Commando is a villain that you can't take your eyes off because you're like, is he threatening? I don't find him threatening. He's weird. He's psychotic. Yeah. But I don't believe for a chance that Arnie's not going to pummel him. And then in Mad Max 2, you know, the biker gangs and Lord Humongous, you don't see his face. He's just there in a metal hockey mask, just naked, torturing people. And it's kind of like, this is fascinating. I don't know who he is, what's going on, but I'm scared of him. And I don't even have to see his face. So it is definitely those kind of villains that got burned into my memory from a yearly age. And then, of course, being from the UK, Bond villains are a big part of that. But when I first started writing my book, Vernon Wells was at the top of the list for that reason. And right. luckily for me, he was one of the first actors to say yes. So I thought once I had Vernon Wells off the list, then hopefully other doors would open and they did. I interviewed Ed Mendelssohn for, uh, what was the film? The King. And I asked him about sort of being cast in villainous roles. And he compared it to just being a taxi driver and you have your patch. And, you know, that if that's your patch, that's that you're, he's perfectly happy to make a living doing his patch and, and trying to find the interesting angles. It's not, you know, and I thought that was interesting that, you know, the possibility of stereotyping or, or typecasting is, uh, sorry, is mm. a better, better phrase. Did you find any of the people you were interviewing sort of resentful of that or were they mostly just happy to, to do what they can? Everyone had a different story. So kind of Paul Freeman, who played Belloc in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. Uh, in the first book, he was kind of like, yeah, after Raiders of the Lost Ark, I kept getting offered roles to play Nazis. It's like, I wasn't even a Nazi in Raiders of the Lost Ark, but they kept getting offered to me. David Warner, who amazingly, when I first sat out to interview him, he was like, why, why are you interviewing me? I don't normally play villains. It's like, of course you do. You play, you literally play evil in the Time Bandits, you know, and then just start listing off films like Tron and Titanic. And, and he was like, oh, okay. Yeah. 
yeah. And he said after playing Jack the Ripper in Time After Time, there was a phase where he kept getting sent villainous roles. And yeah, actors like Tymar, he, he's been offered a bunch. But I think there are loads of actors that see it as, hey, they're always going to keep working. And even today, people like Mads Mikkelsen, he is offered every villain role under the sun. And he takes them because he knows he can just go back to Denmark and make films like Another Round and Riders of Justice. Whereas here in Hollywood, he can just collect that big Warner Brothers paycheck from taking over from Johnny Depp or being in the new Indiana Jones film and then do whatever he wants in his home country. So uh, I think it all depends on the actor and the opportunity. But, you know, for for working actors, very few are going to say no to roles. If you've got the luxury to kind of pick and choose, then I'm sure many will. I think with Mads, and, you know, I mean, I first saw him in Casino Royale, but then I went back and watched his work in, in Pusher, particularly Pusher 2. And he's amazing in Pusher 2. He's such a great... And then obviously, you know, he's he's become widely recognised by everyone, I think. But I think, I mean, is it, is, is it something almost physical that, you, that a certain very distinctive look seems to, seems to be important, you know? I think it all depends really when the film's getting made, because obviously in the 80s, you had people like... Stallone and Schwarzenegger and they're big muscle bound guys and you needed people to kind of go up against that type of of hero but then you also had the more sophisticated bad guy like Alan Rickman in uh, Die Hard so it all depends on the film and who the main actor is because obviously in the 70s your action heroes were kind of Charles Bronson Clint Eastwood so you had people like Andrew Robinson playing the, not the Zodiac Killer Scorpio in Dirty Harry. And he's just like... Basically the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, he's just a weirdo. And at no point do you think that he's ever a physical threat to someone like Clint Eastwood. And then in the 80s, you kind of get big, jacked-up bad guys who are former weightlift lifters or stuntmen that can fight people like Arnie and Stallone. And then in the 90s, when action heroes kind of slim down and get more slender and look like Keanu Reeves or Christian Slater or Brandon Lee, you get a different type of bad guy altogether, you know, martial artists or actors um, with Oscars under their belts suddenly started being offered these villainous roles because it's just more appealing. And after the success of Alan Rickman, it's like, yeah, no, let's get some thespians in here to to shake things up. So yeah, I, it's everyone's different. And I thought that was the great thing about interviewing these actors because no one really had the same story. Talking about Fespians, even Stephen Burkhoff was, uh, predates Alan Rickman as that kind of 80s bad guy with the with those, you know, those crazy eyes. I mean, that's, I guess that's what I mean by sort of physical characteristic because yeah. the, the sort of the mad stare, the ability to stare someone off the screen, basically. It's actually Burkhoff's birthday today, I think. Yeah, he's in, I interviewed him for the first book and he was very upfront about how he doesn't like making Hollywood films and while he was like on the set of Beverly Hills Cop or Octopussy or uh, Rambo 2 he would be just in his trailer writing plays just kind of going yeah I will just get through this testosterone fueled nightmare and then I'll just go back to the UK and do my own thing because he was you know, savvy enough to realise that this will open doors he doesn't necessarily enjoy the experience but it's, it's an opportunity and you know from making a Rambo he can fund three of his pet projects. What about, there's always a line with a lot of these these villains. I mean, I actually, I, I sort of was thinking, because I was reading your book and I, I tweeted the other day about how, you know, a villain that you don't sort of love to hate in a sort of camp enjoyable way, but you really do just sort of fearsomely hate. What, mm. What's one of those villains for you? There's a villain that I hate because he's a dick, but... Weirdly, he is also 100% right. And that is William Atherton in Ghostbusters playing Walter Peck. So I interviewed him for the first book. And essentially, he is an obnoxious bureaucrat. He is rude. He's pushy. And when you're watching Ghostbusters, you're like, yeah, Peter Bateman, stick it to this guy. He's a prick. But he is 100% right. He's working (laughs) for the Environmental (laughs) Protection Agency. And for all he knows, these... Con artists are, you know, convincing people they've seen ghosts. They are possibly storing unlicensed chemicals in their basement. And they're walking around with unregulated nuclear reactors on their back. Everything about the Ghostbusters is suspect. And he has every right to be there to demand access to their operations. And everyone is being a dick about it. Bateman's being a dick. Walter Peck's being a dick. But Walter Peck is clearly in the right. And when I interviewed him, I was like, this film came out at the height of the 80s. Do you believe that 
your portrayal of the EPA has something to do with Donald Trump inherently hating the EPA. And he was like, I think we're just giving Donald Trump a little bit too credit to have learned anything from anything. So I don't think so. But yeah, that is a villain who it's like, he's absolutely loathsome and you want him to get his comeuppance. But he is 100% right in what he's doing. Such a good point. That's such a good point. I always think he's an interesting actor as well because he starred in one of Spielberg's first, I think it was his first cinematic film. Yeah, he, The Sugarland Express. Yeah, with Goldie yeah. Hawn. And he's sort of like a lead a lead character, but he's a sort of lead character in that sort of 70s way of being a bit of a loser and a bit of an outsider and not particularly heroic. But it's just funny how his career went from that to playing, as you say, the peck in Ghostbusters. And isn't he, he's, doesn't he turn up as an obnoxious FBI agent in Die Hard as well? He's a reporter. He's Richard Thornburg, ah. who endangers the McLean family by putting them on TV. And, and then he's also punched in Die out Hard by too. the wife. He does. Bonnie Bedelia smacks him around the face. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Not really. I'm imagine. I'm hoping it was pretend, but you know. you'd hope so. You'd hope so. I don't know what kind of set John McTiernan runs, but yeah, I can't help but think though it's almost like an atavistic thing that when I see actors in different roles, I just assume it's the same person. If you know what I mean, just the same character as well. So it's like, God, this guy's got some bad luck. Just keeps turning on. What's that? There's a book. Is it David Thompson wrote called Ten Bad Dates with Robert De Niro, which is just oh, like, really? yeah, which is just a list of. I mean, it's a book of lists, essentially, but one of them is, you know, all the dates that you see Robert De Niro have in movies and how terrible they are. You know, Taxi Driver and Dates Sybil Shepherd to the oh, yeah. to the porn theatre and, you know. So apparently, yeah, De Niro is not, you know, ne- regardless of what Ban- Banana Rama uh, sa- sang, you know, he's not... a. Uh, it's not a good guy to go on a date with. So, so what about like your a, a co- so that he's he's one that you that you sort of hate. Mm. What about one that you fear? Because I don't think you'd you'd fear Peck, would you? You'd, uh... No. Because I remember I, I, it's it's come up in quite a few podcasts that we've done, quite a few episodes that we've done. But I remember really being absolutely terrified of Darth Vader. I mean, I saw it on the big screen. I was very young. I was like six years old, I think, and it it just terrified me. I think as a child of the 80s and 90s, for me, Darth Vader was always there. So Mm. I don't have that kind of, who is this man? He's terrifying. It's just Darth Vader, pop culture icon. But the villains that I always found the scariest were the ones that clearly couldn't be reasoned with and didn't have any semblance of humanity. So, you know, someone like Alan Rickman in Die Hard, you're like, oh, he's charming he, he doesn't really have to kill people unless he has to even though he's going to blow up all the hostages in order to get away you kind of feel that if he likes you you might you know be able to talk your way out of it but it's the uh it's the villains who they're like i think scorpio in dirty harry where he's so unhinged he's slapping children around on a bus he's just coldly sniping people from rooftops it's like there's no way into that character. You're kind of like, you are terrifying. And as a result, actually, the actor Andrew Robinson, casting directors were afraid to meet him as a result. He didn't work for years afterwards because he told me one story of where he was walking up the path to meet a casting director at Warner Brothers, and then they recognized him, and then they canceled the interview and told like their secretary to send him away because they were like, that terrified of him after his trail in Dirty Harry. So it wasn't until, you know, the odd role in Cobra and Hellraiser and then Deep Space Nine where he plays Garrick that, you know, he started working again. But there was a fallow period for him because he was so effective at playing a psychopath. And these casting directors presumably have worked in Hollywood. They understand what a film is. They understand what the actors are. They understand you would have the- thought so, but apparently not, no. It's like that, that guy, he kidnapped kids in a bus. I'm not talking to that guy. Yeah. Oh my god, that's so funny. That's that's such a good. Uh, are there any other sort of like real life consequences from you know? I mean, I remember um, Mike Baldwin from Coronation Street being in a pub once, uh, where, where, which I was in, and somebody went up to him and said, "Mike, I think it's terrible what you're doing to Deirdre." Or has <laughs> there ever have, have you come across situations where people who've played baddies have sort of found themselves being shouted at in restaurants or anything like that? Oh, yeah. Plenty of them have kind of like, I can't believe you did that thing in the film. And William Atherton said there were years where people just yelled dickless at him across the street after Ghostbusters. So, so many people have stories like this where they're just kind of like, oh, 
But if anything, it kind of comes down to a credit to their acting abilities that they manage to get that kind of reaction out of people where people are coming up to them in the streets going, I can't believe you did that thing and that thing that I watched. How could you? And they're like, I'm just very good at my job. <laughs> I bet, but I mean, Dickless, is it, that's, I mean, that's a backhanded compliment if there ever was one. Oh, that just goes to the popularity of that film. I think for him, it was both kind of, a, you know, a victory lap at this, you know, how well Ghostbusters did and just kind of like, oh, I'm going to have to deal with this one for at least a decade. Yeah, I'm with my kids. I'm with, <laughs> I'm with my, my kids. kids. Guys, I'm on a date. I'm eating <laughs> out. What are you doing? Oh, oh wow. Um, so, I mean, uh, when you when you talked earlier, when you, you know, one thing you mentioned earlier was, uh, of course, the Bond films, which you know, being from the UK as well, yeah, hugely influential. And in fact, I, I heard someone say something a, a year or so ago, which I thought was very true. Which a Bond film is only as good as its villain. You know, mm. the villain has to be top class, which actually has made Casino Royale, I think, better in retrospect because I remember watching it without really knowing who Mads Mikkelsen was and thinking, yeah, he's okay. And then appreciating him more. And as you do, the sort of the level of the film goes up. Do you, what, who would be your favorite Bond villain? And who would you, you know, do you think that's true that you, you really need a good villain for the Bond film to work? I do. And the thing about Bond films is you have, can have multi tiered villains. Like you can have, someone like Donald Pleasance who represents kind of the more cerebral villainous side and then surround him by a big bunch of heavies that could you know provide the physical threat to Bond but in terms of like elevating you know a Bond film it's always going to be Christopher Lee as Scaramanga because on its own the man with the golden gun isn't the best Bond film it's ripping off 70s kung fu films Britt Eklund is wandering around the film getting in the way there's knickknack <laughs> it's, it's it's like a list of people who who you know would be offended and kind of rightly so. I'm not. I'm not I, I'm, I mean, the, the plot it's about an energy crisis. Like I think Bond's trying to get like a, a a device that will convert solar power because you know there's the energy crisis going on in the 70s. So plot wise, it's good to see we haven't moved on in 50 years. But Scaramanga. Because Christopher Lee is just so charismatic, and you know the 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 scenes where him and Bond are having dinner and it's been aped so many times by Partridge, uh, by Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon in their trip things. It's like, come, come, Mr. Bond. We are both killers. And <laughs> it, it, he just elevates the material. And I think that is a prime example of where, where the villain elevates the entire film. Yeah, yeah. I, I re-watched that recently. I think at the beginning of the lockdown, I had a new set of Blu-ray collection of, of Bond movies. So I watched them from the beginning to the end. And the one thing that drives me nuts about that film is there's an amazing stunt. The corkscrew <sighs> jump over the river. They do the slide whistle. It's just, and the cutaway for comedy reactions as well. And it's just like, that's the best stunt. And you just, you ditch it, you know? It's just awful. The the other one I love, one of my favourite Bond films is actually The Living Daylights. And that's one where it has a bunch of villains, you know, Joe Don Baker and uh, I've forgotten the actor's name, the one who's in The Fugitive, but he plays the defector, Gorgie. As villains, they are completely ineffectual. And the main threat is Andreas Vinuski who plays uh, Necros, the big blonde uh, KGB henchman who disguises himself as a, you know, throughout the film and strangles people while listening to The Pretenders. And he's great. <laughs> I interviewed him in the first book. But that is a film that I think has the most complicated plot of a Bond film. There's defections, and it's so he can, like, sell weapons to Taliban in order to get opium, which he's then going to sell on the black market. So Bond's got a team up with the the northern afghan alliance to stop the taliban and the rush it's it's so overly complicated more than a bond film needs to be but i love it so much because of the bad guys i love timothy dalton it feels like a real cold war thriller that suddenly ends up in afghanistan and it does have that great stunt where they're on the back of the plane on the the cargo net fighting each other and yeah i, I think andreas vinuski on the back of being in a Bond film and also being in Die Hard, where he plays Carl's brother, Tony, who's killed at the beginning. He thought he was going to have a very long career in Hollywood where he would just play big blonde henchmen and Nazis. And that never happened for him. He was just the odd bit part here, you know, showing up in Mission Impossible as Vanessa Redgrave's right-hand man, and then reprising the role weirdly in Ghost Protocol where he has no lines. It's, yeah, it, that that is an actor where, you know, you've been in two big films. You're like, hello, Hollywood 
Hollywood. I am here and nothing. Wow. And then there are certain actors who seem to work on five films per year who I, I'm never quite sure how. I just think, oh, they must have wonderful agents because I don't see it in the work. Or it's just contacts, just knowing people mm. um, and, and being a very reliable and nice working actor. Vernon Wells from Commando. He makes about five films a year. He works with on lower budget films, but he's just there. He'll come in, do his work for a few days, you know, be a bit of a bolster to a cast for like a young filmmaker who's trying to get a film made. And yeah, he just does his stuff and, and goes. And people are always like, oh, what happened to that guy from Commando? He's constantly working. And he was in like the Power Rangers, I think. He's like a bad guy in the new generation of Power Rangers. So to a whole generation of of kids, I think he's he's still quite a big deal. It's, uh, the best advice I ever got as a journalist was uh, someone just said to me, "Always respect the word count and always respect your deadlines." And you'd yeah. be you'd be surprised about how many people don't do that. So by just doing that basic thing, you know, you'll uh, you'll put yourself in the lead of quite a few quite a few other people. Who don't like Eric Roberts? Eric Roberts is three hundred IMDb credits, and I'm sure he would be the first to say that eighty percent aren't that great but he's constantly working. He, he will go there, do the job, probably for a day, get his paycheck and go. And say what you want about the films that he makes. People are hiring him for a reason. He's reliable. He'll come yeah. and do, do the job. Whether yeah. you like that work or not, Eric Roberts, constantly working. Danny Trejo as, as well. As Danny Trejo, uh, another one, yeah. It's almost a record he'll come holder, in. I think. Yeah, he'll come in, be Danny Trejo, do the work, and that's it. Be a lot yeah. of fun at lunch. Yeah, that's the important thing. If you're fun Tell at lunch... some harrowing stories at lunch. <laughs> and uh, yeah, be great. I think I think that's underestimated how much people get hired because they're good at lunches. You know, they're, they're, they're fun to have on the set. Yeah, I, I once heard an interview with Danny Trejo where someone was talking to him about Con Air and they were like, oh, you're on Con Air. That's the most testosterone-packed film. You know, John Malkovich and Nicolas Cage and Bing Rains. He's like, you, you've hung around with a lot of badasses. And it's like, who on that set could take care of themselves is like legit the hardest guy. And he was just like John Cusack. It's like people ride off John Cusack. John Cusack's six foot four. He's been doing kickboxing since he was a teenager. He doesn't need to show off. He just has that look where it's like, I, I don't need to preen like some sort of peacock. I can just take, take care of myself. He's like, don't fuck with John Cusack. John Cusack will mess you up. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, there you go. Snorris say anything could beat up everyone on the set of Conor if he wanted to, but he didn't need to. You've just saved lives because there are so many people who listen to this podcast who would just brush past John Cusack and maybe knock him into the gutter a little bit as a pasty-faced guy, and then and then he's going to wipe the floor with them. So I've interviewed his kickboxing instructor, Benny the Jet Aquides. So in Gross Point Blank, the assassin that he fights in the hallway, that is his kickboxing uh, instructor. And Benny the Jet is like an undefeated kickboxing champion. He trained uh, the cast of Street Fighter. He trained the cast of Roadhouse. He's fought with Jackie Chan in uh, Wheels on Meals and Dragon Forever. He's fought great martial artists. And he's like, yeah, no, I, I trained John Cusack. And for that film, Gross Point Blank, I was just like, I trust you, you trust me, let's just go at it. And they are just pummeling each other in that scene. Yeah. So yeah, I if I if anyone comes away from this interview with one piece of advice, it's don't piss off John Cusa. <laughs> Absolutely. I remember during the Black Lives Matter uh, demonstrations, right at the beginning of them, he sort of went down there on his bike and there's a film of him being sort of told to turn around by the police officers and everything. And now that that just gives out a whole different fizz. That's, that's yeah. sort of like, what was Cusack doing? He's taking it into his own hands. I mean, one can only assume he was there, you know, to take part in the protest. I don't think John Cusack's the type of guy who's going to go down there and start protesting against Black Lives Matter. Oh, no, no. He was but... definitely BLM. He wasn't ALM. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, no, wow. What about when I, um, you mentioned adolescence earlier on, and, and mm. I went through an adolescence stage where I would watch movies that I had watched already, usually, and I would just find myself siding with the baddies. I would find myself watching Star Wars and going, come on, fire already, fire, you know, get the, is, is there any, are there any uh, sort of baddies who, who, you're in danger of being recruited. I don't think so. That never happened with Star Wars. Right. And it's clearly because they're all space Nazis. And I'm like, as from a very young age, I was like, oh, look, they're all white and British. And look at the rebels. It's all a bunch of aliens and it's a mixed bag of people. And I was like, well, I'd hang out with those guys. Never wanted like the Empire to win. <laughs> 
I think from a very young age, I was like, there is something not that welcoming about these stormtroopers. They are terrifying. But bad guys, not really. I mean, I always grew up as a big Star Trek fan. Mm. And I think watching Star Trek a lot, I was always like, you know, who'd be fun to hang out with? Bunch of Klingons. All they want to do is eat, drink, sing, get into brawls. I bet no Have one passes harder. Have a strange Muppet, Muppety Dark Crystal Dog, like exactly. Christopher Lloyd in yeah. Star Trek 3. Christopher Lloyd, yeah, who's just wrestling aliens for fun. I was like, yeah, I don't think there would be anything more fun than partying with a group of Klingons for one night, and then you would regret it for at least a month afterwards. <laughs> I think they are the only bad guys where I was like, yeah, I'd hang out with them. Yeah, I think everyone else is like, hmm, no. No, no. So some, something would end up going wrong and I'd inevitably be killed. <laughs> it's like, who wants to be the random henchman? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. In like a Bond villain lair, it's like you are either going to get killed by James Bond or you're going to be killed by your boss as some sort of example to everyone else. It's like, this is not a safe working environment. I would not do well here. I wouldn't want to sit on the board. I wouldn't want to sit on the, around that table, that oval table. I am not going across that very thin bridge <laughs> that goes over his piranha moat. I'm not. No, no. <laughs> and just for listeners, um, Ty is drinking from a Star Trek Star Trek mug, thus proving uh, proving his point. I'm a cliche. Do, were you original Star Trek? Was uh, what's your your favourite? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, Star Trek, when you, when you grew up in the UK in the 90s, Star Trek was always on. Yeah. So 60s Star Trek was on Friday nights. Next Gen was on Wednesdays. When Deep Space Nine started, that was Thursdays. And Voyager was on on Sundays. So my dad had a lot of 60s Star Trek recorded from when it was on in the 70s after News Round. Yeah. So I watched a lot of that. And then I, I was already a Star Trek fan when Next Gen started in the UK. I just kept on watching it. Yeah, yeah. No, I started. I probably saw those ones, the original ones, in the seventies, and then and then I remember Next Gen coming out, and there being a big sort of fold out in the Daily Mirror or something, you know, telling you who all the, mm. and being very suspicious of it, being oh, I'm not sure God. about this. If you can go through all of history and just kind of every time a new Star Trek thing launches, and the fans or people going, oh, I don't know about this, a woman captain, <laughs> yeah. a black Vulcan. What is going on? Or it's just on a space station. They don't move. It's never going to work. Every time it happens, every time there's a new Star Trek series. It's like, I can't tell sometimes which fandom is the worst. I just, I just, any, any fandom that is called a fandom is all that. Any fandom. Star Wars, Batman, James Bond. Every time there's a new casting, it's like, oh, this is going to be the worst Batman ever. I can't believe they cast Heath Ledger as a Joker. It's going to be the worst. What, this actor's blonde. He can't play James Bond. Who is this six foot four Australian playing Wolverine? It should be Bob Hoskins. It's like throughout history, fandom is consistently wrong. And every time there's a new casting, it's just another wave of, they're inevitably going to be wrong in a year, but let them burn their effigies and everything in protest. It's like, it's unbelievable. It's exhausting. And yet the unearned arrogance remains somehow that they're, they're going to be right about this as well. This isn't Star Trek. I'll tell you what Star Trek is. It's a Star Trek I have in my... Star Trek suddenly now politically correct. Oh, my God. It wasn't inclusive in my day. Oh, oh. It had the first interracial kiss on American television. It's, <laughs> it's exhausting. I, I, yeah, it, I, yeah, it's, it's yeah. 
fandom. I, I, I blame social media. It just, it amplifies the worst possible voices in every possible fandom. And you're like, does no one enjoy anything? Because it seems like no one enjoys anything anymore. When I was, I, I, God, I keep turning this into a nostalgia fest, but still, in the old days, son, <laughs> we had, <laughs> uh, if you were a fan of something, you expressed it through fanzines. And that mm. took a lot of effort. You had to actually make them yourselves and print them or even write letters to magazines. Oh, and, yes. and doing that was such an effort that you only did it if you were enthusiastic. You didn't do it if you hated something. You just went, oh, I'm not going to bother with that anymore. I mean, I don't agree with it, but I respect all the people that wrote letters to Warner Brothers protesting when Michael Keaton was cast as Batman, voicing their outrage that Beetlejuice was doing it all, or that, you know some bold-headed English man was going to be the captain of the Enterprise because there's only one captain of the Enterprise. It's William Shatner and writing letters. I appreciate that effort. If you're going to stick to your guns, write a letter, fold it up, get a stamp, walk down the road, put it in the post box. If you're going to go to that much effort, then you clearly care. But Jesus Christ. (laughs) 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 It's definitely lowered the bar of effort for being a dick. Essentially, mm. okay. Let's get let's get back to baddies because uh, because, because otherwise fandom is the baddie. Seems fandom, to be. fandom is the ultimate baddie. Yeah, and it must be defeated at all costs. Absolutely. <laughs> what about what? Who's the funniest baddie for you? Who's a, a baddie who's been most uh, sort of makes you laugh the most? That is a good question. That is a great question. I'm trying to think now because I remember reading an interview with. Josh Joss Whedon. This is back in the day. Yeah. And it was when he was making Serenity and he cast all these kind of comedians in dramatic roles. And he said, comedy is the hardest thing to get right in terms of timing and everything. If you're good at comedy, you're good at everything else. So that's why he casts lots of comedians in dramatic roles. And I'm trying to think of like an actor who is a comedian that has done a villainous role very well. And now I'm struggling. Mm. Someone like Christopher Lee, now that we mentioned him in Star Trek 3, he... That man... Christopher Lloyd, Christopher Lloyd, yeah. Sorry, Christopher Lloyd, yeah, Christopher Lloyd. You know, because of Taxi and Back to the Future and, you know, even showing up in Cheers as, you know, a weird painter. He's very good at just kind of going from deranged to adorable. For some reason, that's the one sticking in my mind. Michael Keaton is another one. He's got a film coming out called The Protégé that Martin Campbell's directed. He looks like he's the bad guy in that. Mm. Michael Keaton is a funny guy. What about Robin Williams in One Shot Photo? That's... um... One shot photo, one... I find him creepier in insomnia. Yes, yeah. Because he's so, you know, it was all an accident. I didn't mean to kill this girl. You know, I I really liked him. I find that creepier than just kind of like one hour photo where it's like, you're creepy. But it's kind of like in insomnia where he's trying to justify what he's done and say, oh, you know, we really liked each other. And yeah. And Pacino has that killer line where he says something like, "It, it took you three hours to beat her to death. And it's yeah. just like, oops. That know. is a good call. Robin Williams, yeah, that is very unnerving when he plays a killer. Yeah. But in that case, he's not, obviously, he's not being funny. Like he's, a, he's a comedian who's who's playing against type. Um, I was thinking... I'm going to come back to Alan Rickman as the Sheriff of Nottingham. Yeah. Because yeah. he is in his complete own film. Kevin Costner's in a completely different film. And Alan Rickman is just storming around the castle, you know, demanding statues be made of him, getting women sent to his room, cancelling Christmas. He's great. He made, he elevates that film so much into what would otherwise, you know, just be a standard 90s, you know, sword-waving action thing with Alan Rickman there, and he's just there picking his teeth while, you know, the merry men are getting slaughtered. Yeah, Alan Rickman, I think. Yeah. That man was legit hilarious everything from like galaxy quest and then just taking that kind of dryness and just putting it into the sheriff nottingham i loved him in bob roberts as the sort of chief of staff of uh tim robbins sort of right wing well outright sort of uh congressman running for president and he i think i've ever seen that there's there's a brilliant bit where uh he's he's shot uh, Bob Roberts is shot. It's not a spoiler. It happens sort of halfway through. It's not. not and it's a kind of faux documentary. Mm. So it's and Rickman, who is this sort of prince of darkness in terms of his being his press agent and everything, sort of says um, he's he, he's giving an interview outside the hospital, and he says at the end, he says, "Excuse me, I've got to go and pray." 
and, and walks <laughs> off and you just think this guy is so good because he's the last person ever to pray so it's just this sliminess is, is complete I was also thinking of Dennis Hopper I mean obviously in Blue Velvet he's terrifying but there's also a weird line of humor in that role and then he turns up again in Waterworld and he has this line where he he talks about a ma- one tear rolling down my manly cheek at one point and I, I don't know he just seems to have a lot of fun even when he shouldn't I think that was yeah after Speed where they were like oh Speed was such a big hit let's put Dennis Hopper in anything and let him do whatever he wants yeah I think when yeah. you give an actor like that just free reign to to do whatever they want it's it's always good fun. Whether it matches the tone of the film or not is another matter altogether. <laughs> well, as you say, yeah, it becomes sort of like a different film in those scenes. David Lynch uh, had had a brilliant story he tells in his autobiography about uh, casting uh, Dennis Hopper for Blue Velvet. Basically, Blue um, Hopper went after the role uh, and phoned him up and said, "Look, I've, you've got to give me this role. I am Fat Frank Booth," and uh, Lynch said, "Ah, oh, Dennis." That's both really, really good news and really, really bad news. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, um... oh, yeah, A- actors who kind of say, I'm really like this psychopathic killer. It's like actors who go method. Do you realise they, they often only go method when they're pl- playing psychopaths or horrible people? No one ever goes method when it comes to playing a nice person. Maybe Daniel Day-Lewis for Abraham Lincoln. Maybe he was going around like freeing people and gangs of New York. He was going around Rome picking fights. Of course he was. <sighs> you read about all these people going method. It's like, what are you playing? Oh, you're playing a gangster or a thug or a killer. Of course you're going method. <laughs> yeah. You, oh, you're playing somebody who cleans toilets. Yeah. Are you going method on that one? Oh, no, you're not. What a shocker. I'm getting this, the impression that you think that method acting is a self-indulgent scam. I, I'm definitely from, you know, the, the apocryphal tale of, you know, Laurence Olivier on Marathon Man, you know, talking to Dustin Hoffman, who's been up three nights to portray being tired. And Laurence Olivier just goes, have you tried acting? Just act. There's a really good story John Bowman tells of Burt Reynolds on Deliverance. And they had this scene where he's supposed to go through these dangerous rapids. And and they said, okay, bring the dummy on. We're going to send the dummy down and film it. And Reynolds was like in his most macho stuntman sort of persona. He's like, no, no, it'll be rubbish. I'll do it. I'll do it. So Bowman's like saying, look, we can't risk you. You're, you're, you know, it's... Reynolds... yeah, and he's like <laughs> insists, no, I'm going to do it. So Burt Reynolds goes down these rapids, hits his back on the rock, damages his back, has to be helicoptered out to hospital, operation on his back. Bowman turns up two days later to see how he is, and he's stretched out, and he says, what was the shot like? What did it look like? He said, it looked like you were a dummy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> After doing all that, he still looked like uh, he still looked fake, you know. Yeah. Okay. What about uh, th- this? Is another thing I I, I wanted because I got into. I was talking to somebody recently about uh, nobody, the the new Bob Odenkirk mm. film, and I was kind of saying, you know, it's all a lot of fun and everybody enjoyed it and everything, but it's kind of quite noxious as well in terms of its, you know, the messages it has and everything. And I know there's a lot of resistance to people talking uh, about the ideological impact of you know, uh, of big action movie entertainment. But, Mm. you know, who the baddies are is kind of a very big ideological decision. And so if we go back to the, as you were saying, if you go back to Star Wars and everybody's white and British and, okay, we can read them as the Nazis, even though, you know, it, it flips a nationality to some degree. I think the uniforms are a dead giveaway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the triumph of the will celebrations by the rebels led by a southern <laughs> farm boy somewhat complicate matters. But yeah, I, I yeah, get Yeah, yeah. I get you. So so that's that's also a question I sort of wanted to ask you is that this idea of, you know, is it going to be Eastern European mafia who are acceptable? Is it going to be Indians, American Indians, Native Americans mm. in in the B movies? Is it going to be Tariq Ali or someone in True Lies? You know, what, who are, who are, or even, um, what was it in Back to the Future? Was it sort of Middle East? Syrians. Syrians, right. Syrians. No, Libyans. The Libyans. Right, right. In their VW van. Yeah, yeah. And there's an even worse, there's a really, really, really racist uh, film with Jeff Goldblum 
where it's it's yeah I'm, I can't remember the exact nationality, but it's Middle Eastern ter- terrorists, and they're all played by the directors in brownface essentially. Mm. It's like even Steven Spielberg is in there, I think, somewhere. So so how do you how how do you feel about that? Is there is there are the sort of films that you find it difficult to like because the villain is is coming from that, or do you just write it off as that's that particular moment and it wouldn't be the same today? But kind yeah, that's. That's really good because, you know, a lot of things are the product of their time. And I'm someone who's half Indian. So like at this point for half of my life, post 9-11 and even before 9-11, if anyone shows up with brown skin, there'd be me and my brothers going, he's going to be a terrorist and he's probably going to be dead in whatever. There was this one uh, season of 24. That's a big 24 fan ground. I think it was the fourth season. And Cal Penn who is a very funny Indian actor. Um, and I think he's even worked for the Obama administration. But before then, he was playing a, a student, a Muslim student in 24. And terrorists detonate a nuclear bomb in LA. And he is suddenly beaten up by two, you know, Johnny Rednecks in the street of LA who are like, oh, you're a terrorist, you're a terrorist. How dare you do this to our country? And he's saved by this lovely white family who take him in. And then lo and behold, he's a terrorist and takes him hostage. And I was watching it going, what the fuck kind of message is this? So yeah, I'm very conscious of, you know, when something is made and what message it does send out. And I think Middle Eastern terrorists, you know, whether it's executive decision or true lies, you know, they are a trope that Hollywood does go back to the well with very often. However, today, what I've noticed is terrorists seem to be people who seem to be inherently anti-capitalism and trying to tear down this old world to rebuild a new one. Most recently in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, where the flag smashers were, you know, people who had survived the the blip or the snap in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where countries had all kind of come together to survive half the population getting erased. And they basically, they were dedicated to feeding people. (laughs) And then somewhere (laughs) along the lines... Yeah, the filmmakers were like, well, we can't make them too sympathetic. Let's make them burn these aid workers to death or something. And I was like, this is very odd. And also environmental terrorists, people who are like environmentalists. And I remember reading Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six book back in the day. I think that was early 2000s. And the people in that are people who want to stop overpopulation. I think they're going to release a virus to kill people because they want to save the planet. And, you know, even Thanos in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is someone who, you know, is basically resources are running out. He wants to be completely clean about it and just remove half of everyone when really he should just kind of maybe get rid of the people that seem to be using up all the resources or create more resources. There are so many ways he could have done. Or, or, or you're in a universe. I mean, it's kind of infinite. Yeah, but it's it's very interesting who... Hollywood is making villains these days. The Russian mafia seems to be a go-to one, but like the John Wick and, and Nobody, and even in Black Widow, it's always, you know, side... It's never, never the Russian government. It's always, are there a Russian black ops side unit thing that's separate? Russians seem to be infinitely villainous. I think the Middle Eastern trope may have been worn out now, finally, after mm. God knows how many decades. Interestingly, China isn't that big a go-to villain because these films often have to play abroad. Well, they famously flipped uh, Red Dawn, the remake of Red Dawn, they flipped from China to, 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 North, to North Korea. To North Korea and digitally changed all the flags, yeah. And even, yeah, it's very odd. I think North Korea was... No one takes North Korea that seriously as a threat in movies because it's like what they're going to do except maybe in Olympus has fallen where suddenly they take the White House yeah I think these days it's always kind of the big multinational industrial military complex types your Blackwater types people who just seem to have armies of mercenaries and I think that is the most interesting villain because these days you do have lots of mercenary groups doing America's bidding around the world or private contractors or or people like that. I would like to see kind of more Rupert Murdoch, Mark Zuckerberg types be portrayed as villains. I think the Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies was ahead of its time yeah. in having a Rupert Murdoch film, you know, try, type person trying to orchestrate a war in order to uh, to sell newspapers. 
maybe that bit hasn't aged that well, but the rest of it to get broadcast rights in China or whatever it is. But, you know, in terms of manipulating information and everything to kind of move political events. Yeah, I, I think those are the most interesting ones. Multinationals, multinationals with mercenary armies. Yeah. I think is where I've settled. Are there any? Uh, would there be any films that sort of like you find difficult to watch because of the sort of the the the, the 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 group which is targeted, or is it? Are you able to sort of take it with a pinch of salt and just consider the context and not? Um... I never was really into John Wayne films mm. because it's always the Native Americans that are the bad guys. I like the westerns where it's like bandits or Confederate raiders or it's you know Yankee raiders and you know yeah. the. the Spaghetti Westerns. Or... I was going to say the Sergio Leone films, is the, I mean, American Indians don't even, yeah. Native Americans don't even turn up, you know. Exactly. And same with stuff like The Magnificent Seven or The Wild Bunch. It's always kind of like warlords. But, you know, where it's Westerns, where it's like, we've got a bunch of Puerto Rican and Mexican actors and we're going to say they're Native Americans. Yeah, those ones never really sit well. I think those are probably the only ones. There's. I'm more fascinated by when... Hollywood finds like a trope and makes about five films, becomes fascinated and makes five films around it. Like the Yakuza. It's like, oh, we're going to make Black Rain, Showdown in Little Tokyo, Crying Freeman. And there's like for five years, it's like, we're going to make films about the Yakuza or, or Haitian warlords doing drugs in New York. Like they show up in Predator 2. And it's like, I like those quirky things it's like oh, we can do it on the triads and, and stuff like that something exotic or you know white supremacist Klu Klux Klan on the rise things where it's just kind of like a broad swath of it's Native Americans or it's Muslims it's like they are the least interesting right. of films to me yeah so like Die Hard where it's like they're, they're not terrorists aligned to any political leaning they're just bank robbers they're just robbers they're thieves that's it that's more interesting that's much more interesting more complicated and yet at the same time so i mean it's multi-layered you know he, he he's actually playing with our own fears in order to distract us you know the yeah. alan rickman hans gruber in that um what about is it going to be a third volume are there some people that you you've you you'd really love to to get get that you haven't been able to get yet that's why I did the second volume to kind of get people that I didn't get the first time. And while I got a whole bunch the second time around, there are still a few that I wasn't able to get, but I don't think it's enough names to justify a third volume. So I think I'm I'm tapped out <laughs> now. Yeah, in terms of like writing another book, I've got a few ideas. Uh-huh. I was working on one, but it's I, I've kind of shelved it for now. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I, I was I was into it was all about kind of interviewing people who were there on notoriously, famously difficult productions. Right. So I'd spoken to Jason Fleming about, so what really happened on The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Did Stephen Norrington and Sean Connery get into a fight? And, you know, Lance Guest on Jaws of Revenge, but it's all kind of like, I don't know how to put that book together. And there are films that I definitely want to cover, and no one from that was involved in it wants to talk about it. Yeah, I've had this idea for ages, and I've even floated it on Twitter, that um, there's a Netflix documentary to be made about Twilight Zone movie. You know, yes. because it's just such a fascinating story and it's just but at the same time you know it's would be so frightening from a legal point of view yeah. that you just the, wouldn't the, get in there so many big names are attached to that film that have yeah. no interest in such a project coming Ab- out absolutely but if you're listening <laughs> yeah. Dear Mr. Landis. Spielberg it was just an idea we're not yeah. serious yeah yeah, yeah. No, that's great. So what would be your, uh, well, I hope you, I mean, that sounds like a really good idea. I'd, I'd really like that. And I've just uh, finished reading Mark Harris's book, Scenes from the Revolution. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. He talks about the Dr. Doolittle, you know, which has yes, this that production year, was of it, history. Is that 1970, 1971, the year Hollywood kind of went independent? So no, it, called... it, it's earlier, it's 68. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a 68 Oscars. They might have come out in 67, but it's a 68 Oscars. And so it's Dr. Doolittle, In the Heat of the Night, The Graduate, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, yeah. and Bonnie and Clyde. So, yeah. And then when did Easy Rider come out? Was that 70? So it's kind of like studios are still banking on stuff like Dr. Doolittle and then films like Easy Rider are taking yeah, over. Yeah, I get a feeling Easy Rider's 69. I think yeah. it's just under the wire of the 60s. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's... Uh, but the, the funny thing is... We always look at these difficult productions like Days of Heaven and we think of these big 
difficult productions and sort of the result of the new Hollywood running wild. Mm. Whereas, you know, I mean, Dr. Doolittle was, was absolutely a nightmare, completely over budget, completely over schedule with a drunk, intoxicated lead man who was self-sabotaging everything in sight. I grew up watching that film and I knew nothing about the behind the scenes trouble because my mum was a big musical fan. So I grew up watching so many musicals, like all the Rodgers and Hammersteins. I think the first film I remember watching was Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. So Doctor Doolittle was a one that was played a lot in the house as during my childhood. I had no idea about the behind the scenes strife until probably a couple of years ago where I was like really reading into it. I was like, Jesus Christ, what was going on? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, Rex so, yeah. Harrison was this like a vuncular, twinkly-eyed guy. You know, it wasn't like you didn't look at him and think there's somebody who's going to punch you in the face and get drunk. No, exactly. You, know? you grow up watching him stuff like My Fair Lady, and then you know you suddenly talk to people and go, "Oh, you know, he's a complete dick." Like, yeah. Rex Harrison, really <laughs> sexy, Rexy. <laughs> yeah, it's like he was the worst. Yeah, you know, I can't believe it. Okay, absolutely. Okay, what's your uh, film book recommendation? What film book would you like to recommend to our listeners? Well, I mean, you've already had, blanking on his name now, I uh, saw that you had him on, but I do love uh, Tales from Development Hell and, you know... Greatest. Oh, David Hughes. David Hughes, sorry. Former Empire writer David Hughes. I, I've got both his books. I love films about films that were never made. But as a big action film fan, I'm going to recommend Mike Fury's Life of Action. Right. So Mike Fury is a stuntman, stunt coordinator, and his first book, Life of Action was a very big influence on my book, Born to be Bad, because he basically tracked down a lot of stuntmen, stunt coordinators, people that have worked behind the scenes in action films and talked to them about their process. And that's everyone from like legendary stuntman Vic Armstrong to uh, Scarlett Hansen's stunt double, Heidi Moneymaker. So it's all about how they kind of get into stunts, what goes into making, you know, the biggest names in Hollywood look as good as they do. Oh, and you know, while you're at it, pick up Vic Armstrong's autobiography because that's amazing. It's amazing. I love that's that. That's a book. great book. Yeah. Yeah. How he met his wife. She was doubling uh, Margot Kidder and he was doubling Christopher Reeve. That scene where Superman catches her, that's how he met his wife. It's like, that's amazing. That is a story for the ages. The best story in that book is when he's invited, kind of, he's invited by Harrison Ford to meet up while he's in America. So he goes over to his house and it's sort of quite in the distance. It's quite uh, isolated is the word I'm looking for. Anyway, he finds it and he goes in and Harrison Ford says, oh, I want to, he's sort of a bit surprised that it's it's only him. It's like, oh, oh, we just, just the two of us then. He's like, yeah, yeah, why not? And he says, oh, but first I want to show you something in the bedroom. And Bix Armstrong's like, "Um, okay. And he goes into the bedroom and Harrison Ford wants to show him the chest of drawers he's just made. And he pulls the drawer out and he says, look at the, the dovetailing on the <laughs> on the joint there. <laughs> and Big Armstrong's kind of like relieved and slightly disappointed at the same time, I think. I love that about Harrison Ford. The fact that he was a carpenter before he was an action star and to this day he's just making stuff. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, the sorry, the name of the book that you're recommending. So Mike Fury is by Mike Fury and there's Life of Action, Volume 1 and Volume 2. And it's interviews with some of the biggest names in action films, including like many of the guys from 8711. I think Donnie Yen's in there as well. Scott Adkins is in the first one. Um, Zoe Bell, who doubled him, Thurman the Kill Bill. Um, films. And appears in Death Proof as well as And, as and also in The Hateful Eight um, mm. as well. Um, so if you're into action films and especially stunts, the Life of Action books are great. And yeah, Mike, Mike knows his stuff. He's also on Twitter, uh, the Mike Fury. So that and Dick Armstrong's book. If you're just into kind of stunts and behind the scenes of like action films, I think those books are essential. I think they're, they're just really interesting. Brilliant. Fantastic. Well, listen, Ty, thanks so much for uh, talking to me and for giving me your time. Uh, congratulations on the book. Volume two is highly recommended, and I'm going to go and get volume one now and, and so I can read all about uh, all the people I missed. <laughs> oh, Ronnie Cox from Deliverance is in the first one. So ah, he's right. got some good Deliverance stories. And I met Ronnie on the back of the first book coming out. I was hired as a writer-producer on the documentary In Search of the Last Action Heroes. So I got to go to LA and interview a whole bunch of the people I'd previously interviewed for the first book uh, in person. So people like Bill Duke and Ronnie Cox and um, Stephen D'Souza, who wrote the intro for the first book and obviously wrote films like The Running Man and Commando and Die Hard. So, yeah, yeah, it's uh, there's some great 
great stories in the first one. And uh, if you don't like Steven Seagal, prepare to have those beliefs <laughs> solidified. Absolutely. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Ty. No problem. Thank you, John. So that was our conversation, me and Ty. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. His recommended book was uh, Mike Fury's Life in Action, Volumes 1 and 2. He also recommended Vic Armstrong's autobiography, which I can highly recommend as well. It's a brilliant book. Thanks as ever go to Ali, Elliot Atkins for the music and Ali Harwood for the art. Until next episode, please take care. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>